Hello, my name is Karen Talamelli Cusick, Executive Vice President of Impact Wave. I'd like to welcome everyone to our latest in our Impact Wave podcast series. As we recognize October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, Mary Jane Foster. Mary Jane is President and CEO of Interval House in Connecticut. Mary Jane has been an advocate for victims of domestic violence since 1989, when she began volunteering at the YWCA of Bridgeport. Her work with victims of domestic violence led her to a law degree and subsequently practicing family law, representing those who experience intimate partner abuse. She continued her volunteer work in domestic violence-related arenas and was instrumental in founding the Center for Family Justice in Bridgeport, Connecticut, the first family justice center in Connecticut. Well, welcome, Mary Jane. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Thank you. As at the beginning of October, um, we, we were looking at the statistics of incidents of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, and they're truly staggering. Uh, yeah. This type of abuse also seems to affect all races, people of, from all socioeconomic levels. And does that make it harder for some people to come forward, perhaps for either cultural reasons or even highly successful people who don't want to expose a weakness or shame? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. You are absolutely right in that the numbers of um, incidents, reported incidents of intimate partner abuse have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. It's what the World Health Organization calls the shadow pandemic. Uh, global femicide, global uh, violence against women has, has increased and we've seen an uptick um, here in, in the US. And of course, some of that isn't reported because of the isolation and the particular um, specifics of of the pandemic, but the numbers are through the roof. One in four women, one in seven men. Uh, those statistics haven't changed in years and are maybe even trending upward. Uh, about 500 women are murdered a year in the United States. If there's a gun in your house, you're five times more likely to die at the hands of your abuser via a gun. So it's a, it is a real issue. And you are absolutely correct that it has no boundaries. It knows it doesn't discriminate on the basis of um, sex, race, uh, religion, ethnicity, um, uh, socioeconomic background. It, it happens everywhere and to everyone. Um, the National Coalition's um, slogan for this month is everyone knows someone. And it's so true. And to your point about barriers to reporting and barriers to coming forward, there are absolutely cultural barriers. Um, we see that uh, often in the Latino community, uh, and we also see it in the LGBTQ community. In, um, in sectors where, socioeconomic sectors where uh, people who are well-known or perhaps well-to-do uh, in a community often have other resources so they can mask what is happening and they don't come forward. Um, but other times, you know, they end up in a very lethal situation. So again, it happens to everyone. Uh, we do the very best we can to raise awareness and have people understand we are here, we are affirming, uh, we are free and we are confidential and we will always be here 
for victims of intimate partner abuse. And something you just said, I think that um, I lost my train of thought here that, oh, that we're not, it's all around us and the people who are in it, who are afraid to say something, but is it, this is not a conversation that's been normalized so that people who have concerns are almost afraid to address it and bring it up, um, perhaps sometimes until it's too late. Yes. We, uh, we have actually seen that in a couple of cases uh, here in Connecticut, where after the fact, people said, I knew that. I knew that. I should have done something. And survivor guilt is a very painful experience. Um, it, it isn't easy and um, for people to... Uh, step up and recognize and acknowledge an issue, whether you're on the inside looking out or the outside looking in. What I tell people is that you don't have to be an expert to um, be a friend. You don't have to be an expert to be available for someone who needs help. The most important thing you can do is stay in touch. Even if it's just a text or a quick phone call or an email, Hey, kiddo, I was thinking about you. How are you? Haven't seen you. I'm here if you need anything. Best. That's it. Yeah. If you find your opening and you can say, you know, I've been kind of worried about you. Are you okay? Is everything okay? Anything I can do? Um, those are our openings. And you may not have a victim uh, respond in the way that you might hope at that moment. But what it does is open that door so that a victim knows he or she is not alone. Remember, the perfect construct for an abuser is to isolate a victim. Isolate a victim from family, from friends, from work colleagues, uh, faith, their hobbies. Um, and in the course of that isolation, with the demeaning and the diminishment and the verbal and psychological financial abuse, the, the victim begins to feel so totally, utterly isolated and unworthy that he or she doesn't think they can reach out. So the most important thing all of us can do is just be there and be available. And I, I also always add, please leave your judgment at the door. Um, people, people come together and they fall in love and they put their hope and faith and trust in each other. And then there's a wrong turn something goes incredibly badly mm -hmm. and people are embarrassed and ashamed that they either made a bad choice or so often victims feel it's their failure that what we need most especially not to do is to judge them, but be welcoming and open and let them know they have a place to turn whenever it is that they're ready. Yeah, it is providing just a little bit of hope. And, you know, I could really see what you're saying when people feel so hopeless and isolated and then maybe continue to keep it up. It doesn't have to be over overwhelming, just sure. a text now and then not to have that person say that that's one more fact of isolation that mm -hmm. I was dropped off from that. But to keep that kind of lifeline there if and when it's needed. Mm -hmm. oh, that's um, I was I was also surprised by the number, and you, you mentioned it, by the number of men um, who experience domestic violence. Mm -hmm. uh, have those numbers always been that high, or do you, do you think there's um, an increase of re being 
In they the have not always been that high. I, I think all of the above has happened. I think there are more incidents of violence against men, but more importantly, I think men are stepping forward and reporting those incidents. Uh, I think it's, it's probably much more the latter uh, that they, they are finally stepping forward into the light and talking about it. Again, it, it circles back to the same thing I said a few minutes ago. It's about that shame and guilt. And it's really hard to step forward and say, this is what's happening to me and, and report it, to ask for help. Um, and it is culturally, uh, arguably, much more difficult for men to do that than women. So I think, I think the culture is changing such that uh, men are not um, as embarrassed, as afraid uh, to step up. I also think that domestic violence service providers have become um, more inclusive in the work that they do and more prepared to work with broader communities of people. And I think that that has been a real help as well. I, I would think so, because I, like you said, I, I think that culturally it is tough for a man to, to say he's abused by, mm -hmm. you know, a partner, especially if it, uh, you know, isn't, a, you know, perhaps it's not in the same sex relationship, but to feel that they have somewhere to go and somebody sure. who is listening to, to them and not discounting um, what they're going through must be, you know, just the way forward to forward healing and making that in that, do you think there's less instances of domestic violence in same sex relationships? Well, it's interesting. Um, we, we know that intimate partner, um, we don't know. We have always assumed that intimate partner violence um, disproportionately impacted heterosexual couples and, and women specifically. Um, more and more studies are being done, and there are some indications that actually it is higher in the LGBTQ community. Oh, um, one, one study suggests that as many as 43, 44% of lesbian women have experienced intimate partner abuse um, and 61% of bisexual women. The numbers for bisexual um, incidents and for both men and women um, are, are high. It's 37% um, for bisexual men and then 26% for gay men. So um, those are high numbers. Um, I have, have looked pretty extensively at a number of studies and they're still kind of all over the map. And very often they include incidents of sexual assault. And it, it's not clear as to whether that's a um, sexual assault by an intimate partner or by a stranger. So it's really hard to parse those statistics, but it is very, very clear that it happens uh, with regularity in the LGBT community. And it's important for us to remember, it happens everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it's not just one place or one bucket of people, it happens to all of us. I think it's especially difficult in the LGBT community uh, for them to come forward. Uh, for one, the fear of hom homophobia is, you know, ever prevalent and for good reason. Um, the fear that there are not affirming and welcoming domestic violence services, which is less and less true um, 
all agencies, domestic violence agencies are working very hard to make sure that we pivot and we are sensitive and, and welcoming. But also there's, there's a sense of not wanting to be the person. There's culturally, we don't think that there is violence in same-sex relationships generally. And so to upend what is a cultural myth is something that those in, the, in that community don't want to do. They also don't want to be responsible for upending the progress that has been made um, in gender equity. So they're, they, they are reluctant for sort of more global reasons, for cultural reasons. Um, and then there are all of the personal fears they have. Um, what if, what if their all of their family and friends and colleagues um, don't know about their sexual identity? Um, if, they are, if their partner threatens to out them, um, that can be a real deterrent uh, to leaving, as a for instance. So it's a very, very tough, um, uh, tough area. Uh, we're just beginning to pay the attention to it that it deserves, uh, in my view. Um, and we have a lot more work and studying to do um, to make sure that we get it right. And just you touching on, you know, the LGBTQ community and um, the, the threat to out somebody, you know, th there's, I think that touches on that this abuse is not just a physical abuse. No. It's financially, um, mm -hmm. psychologically. I mean, it, it really has so many dimensions that leave somebody such it a does. And isolated. We think, we think about it as, you know, the black eye and the broken ribs. Okay. But in fact, it begins, in my opinion, with, a, with coercive control, with limiting, controlling behavior, um, and with a consistent demeaning and diminishing of another's self-worth. And then, and it escalates. We've seen a great deal more of financial abuse during the uh, pandemic. Quit that job. You don't need that job. I'll take care of you. What do you think? I'm not good enough to take care of you. And uh, in this case, a woman will quit her job. And then before she knows it, she has no resources in her checking account. She has no credit cards and is really, really has no financial wherewithal uh, whatsoever. And of course, some of the most vicious and, and life-threatening abuse is the psychological and verbal. Um, it really can upend a life uh, just as dramatically and fully as physical violence. It, it's, um, it's horrific. And it's something that uh, victims have to work very, very hard to work through and, and move, move beyond. Um, but it takes all forms, no question about it. You describing that is physically giving me chills. It it, yeah. it, it is so frightening, and it it, it's nice to know the resources are just identifying this, mm -hmm. whether it's men or different, you know, same-sex right. relationships, and, and creating that um, safe space. But as you pointed no. out, go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the things that I forgot to mention, which is um, increasingly prevalent and really dangerous is uh, technology abuse. Oh. And um, we are seeing, that, well, I will just back up a minute and say that stalking and strangulation are the two leading indicators of future homicide. And so when you are being stalked, 
uh, via your technology, it's not, it's something to pay very close attention to because it escalates. Um, the Apple AirTags are a real danger. They get shoved into the crevice of a car seat. Uh, they get thrown into the bottom of a purse. Um, all of the various locator following, where's my find my app type things um, can be used by abusers. One of the first things we do when we talk to a victim about safety planning is walk through those necessary steps to unplug when it's safe for him or her to do so. Um, once once uh, a victim comes into our safe house, we are very, very careful and vigilant about making sure that any location type devices are, are turned off. And very often, because when you leave is the most dangerous time, um, it's important to stay off social media uh, with all of those, um, those connections turned off for months, for months and months and months. And so that only the people who you really truly trust uh, know how to find you, and where to find you. That's really interesting. You know, I think of those air tags as something that might be, you know, convenient, but it's sure. incredibly convenient for controlling someone. Mm -hmm. wow. Oh, very. Yeah. Um, and w when you were talking about the, you know, that that physical, that um, bullying and the psychological and the, um, the, the verbal abuse, it, it makes me think I've, I've read that one in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year. And 90 percent of these children are eyewitness to the violence. And does this you know, exposure to this type of violence, perpetuate the behavior, making it an intergenerational issue. You know, for I've been involved in this work for over 30 years, and it wasn't until I was actually running this interval house that I understood with absolute clarity how intergenerational family violence is. You, when you grow up and you think think about it about your your normal customs, you you practice you you live what you know, and when children are exposed to family violence, that's what they know. It's their norm. It's not out of the norm for them. It's what they know, and they repeat it. Um, there have been multiple multiple studies on this, and the CDC says that um, up to seventy excuse me, 76% of boys who witness violence will become abusers themselves. And a similar study said that women, young girls who witness family violence, not only will drift towards, choose abusive partners, but they actually never attain parity with their female peers, not financially, not in education, not in their careers. They just are forever in some way smaller and diminished and um, more limited in, in what they do and aspire to. It's really, really tragic. Um, and, and we see it all of the time here. There's no question. We see the trauma that children uh, have experienced. That is just staggering, those percentages. Mm -hmm. And you think of just how much a particular generation is almost so far behind the eight ball before they even get started. Yes. It's, oh, yes. It, it, in fact, I, I was 
talk about the numbers. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, nearly 20 people a minute are physically abused mm -hmm. by an intimate partner in the U.S. alone. Mm -hmm. This equates to more than 10 million men and women right. annually. When you think of those numbers and then the percentages of all those children mm -hmm. who are it is just mind boggling. It is. It's, you know, it, it is really time that we take a step back from this issue and, and think about it not as a, um, uh, a disease or a stigma, but think about it for what it is. It's a public health crisis. Uh, the number of people who are impacted by this, and by the way, domestic violence at home follows right into the workplace, no question about it. And it impacts the GDP. So, you know, as a selfish matter, we should care about uh, the workplace and the lack of productivity and the missed work days. We should care about all of those things, but we need to identify this for what it is. It's a public health crisis. And we are losing women and men and children to full and productive lives. We really, truly need to take the stigma off this and address it. Um, it. It's really imperative. And I think the numbers, the growth in in numbers of cases of domestic violence in this country over the last two and a half, three years is such um, that we are going to be forced to deal with it. Um, it. It is just everywhere, absolutely everywhere. You know, and, and you just um, mentioned something I, I was going to, to bring up that th this is, it has such an economic impact. And, and you're absolutely right. If it was due to a disease, it would be looked at as a sure. public health. You know, I, I, again, me, me and my numbers, but I read that victims of an impact, um, intimate partner violence, lose a total of eight million days of paid work each year. I mean, oh, that yes. is just staggering. And the cost of intimate partner violence in the workplace exceeds $8.3 billion. That, that number is held. And that doesn't include all of the judicial and law enforcement costs either. <laughs> um, it, it is a huge loss, uh, economic loss uh, to the country. Uh, as I said, you know, if, if the only way to grab your attention is to tell you about how what a financial hit you're taking on this issue, I, I am more than happy to do that. Um, it is really very, very significant. We have just got to break the cycle. We have got to take a step back and say, okay, what can we do here? What, what can we do that we haven't done before? What can we do um, that we haven't done enough of? Um, at Edible House, we, we have identified two areas that we are gonna work especially hard on. And it goes back to your very good point about children witnessing violence. Uh, we have just hired a master level clinician. We are going to work with our children and develop and adopt programs that, um, that interrupt their, their trauma cycle. We are going to um, install programs that help children and mothers because we have children and mothers in our safe house work together to rebuild um, or refresh the parent-child relationship. And we are going to be relentless about this. We have art therapy, we have music therapy, we're working on a service dog, and we are going to give this everything we've got. So at least the hundreds of children we work with every year have a fighting chance 
I guess that's a bad pun, a fighting chance Mm -hmm. of living a life free of fear and violence. The other piece that we are going to do, and I'm very proud to say that we actually have received a grant to do it, is um, really increase our outreach and uh, education um, uh, outreach and access so that um, we talk to more people. Pre-pandemic, we worked with somewhere between 12 and 14,000 people a year. It's not enough. And one thing, if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, we've learned that we can communicate all kinds of different ways. So we can be in person, we can be hybrid, we can be Zoom. And if we get past the notion that you have to own your content, we can give it away. We can give it away so that the eighth grade girl who's afraid to ask a question in a Zoom or a classroom can that night hit on a link and get the information she needs to understand what the what the heck is happening in, in her dating relationship. It, we have all kinds of opportunities and we have got to do everything we can to maximize this. This is really, truly, I have come to believe a public health crisis that impacts all of us and requires all of us to be part of the solution. Yeah, it does seem like an all hands on deck type of, you know, issue that needs to be dealt with. Like you said, it's a public health crisis. Um, I, I just read it just um, that the domestic violence awareness flag is flying above the Connecticut Capitol yes. building. And um, I, I looked Arizona State Capitol Dome is being lit purple each night in October. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, are these important steps in raising the awareness and normalizing the conversation? I, I believe that it is. This is one of the few non-government flags. I think only the pride flag has flown above the Capitol before. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really important to raise awareness every single minute. As you said, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. You'll note I am awash in purple. Uh, yesterday was Wear Purple Day, but we do it almost every day here. It's a way to start a conversation. Um, we have got to raise awareness about what this issue is and what the resources are and where you can find them so that we can do everything we can to interrupt this cycle. Um, and so everything that contributes to that, we've had our Hartford Healthcare social workers walking. We've had the Hispanic Health Council walking. We'll be walking at a minor league baseball park in Hartford on Sunday. The more people we bring out, the more people we touch, more people we reach, um, the better chance we have at raising that awareness and um, bringing uh, people into the circle to help us break the cycle. Yeah, it's not only you're not only saving lives now, you're saving lives in the future. Just I hope so. It's it really and it's I tried my best. This is a very dark purple, but I <laughs> it works. I changed. A little brighter than mine. It works. I was trying to. Um, and, you know, I think I um, wanted to kind of close with anything other that you wanted to get out. But what can we do? What could some of our listeners um, do to, to hopefully stop this cycle of violence, this epidemic? And um, if you have any, you know, closing thoughts on Well, as I said, and I say this everywhere I go, the number one thing you can do is talk about this issue. 
Let's shine a light on it. If you'll recall, when the Me Too issues started, the, the more and more people who stood up, the less shame there was associated true. and more people came forward. So let's talk about this issue. Let's talk about it a lot. Uh, I hope anyone who hears this podcast will go out and talk about what they heard. Um, check out the resources. The National Coalition or every state uh, in the country has a statewide coalition. Check out what the resources are. Find out how you can help. You know, money is just a, a piece of what we need to move forward. It really is about um, helping us raise this awareness. I ask my board, I ask my friends, I ask anyone who will listen long enough to invite a few people over and let me talk about this issue. Um, I, I promise not to ask for money. It's not about the money. It's about raising awareness. It's about educating people as to what the issue is. And then the last thing, let me repeat myself, stay in touch with your friends and family and colleagues, especially if you are concerned about someone, make sure you just regularly stay in touch. Isolation is the worst possible place for a victim. So let's not let that happen. Let's all of us be part of staying in touch with those people that, that we care about, we know and we care about. Yeah, and there's uh, these numbers are so staggering. It seems like we all could do a better job. And when in doubt, you're sending just a nice checking in with you. So sure. It can't hurt anyway. No, no. So, that, that's great. Mary Jane, I can't thank you enough for spending some of your time with us, I'm sure, especially during this month. It is action-packed. But Mary Jane Foster, thank you so much thank for joining you. me today, um, helping to get the word out. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this conversation, please give us a like and subscribe to our channel. Hope to see you next time. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>